Now, this is the third week of our profile series, and we're talking about uh, the Jesus you thought you knew. And, and the reason that this tagline is so appropriate, the Jesus you thought you knew, is because if we're honest, most of us have an incomplete picture in our minds of who Jesus really is. When we think of Jesus, we think of kind Jesus, loving Jesus, gentle Jesus, uh, accepting Jesus, never offend anybody Jesus, always turn the other cheek Jesus. In some reality, all of those things are true, but what we're learning in this series is that Jesus is also the most controversial, the most revolutionary person who's ever lived. And if you don't agree with that assessment, just think through his life a little bit. He wasn't born into royalty. He was born in obscurity. He was raised in the military village of Nazareth. That's like the other side of the tracks. He worked with his hands for 30 years. He wasn't considered an intellectual by anyone in his day. When he finally got around to launching his ministry, he chose calloused fishermen and a crooked tax collector to be his companions to follow him around. He didn't really like the religious establishment. He preferred to hang out with sinners. In fact, the sinners that Jesus hung out with, if you read the gospels, I mean, they're like a first century banker gang, a biker gang, not bankers, although they're crooked too. Biker gang, biker gang, right? In fact, uh, some of the harshest words Jesus ever said was for the religious establishment. I jotted down some of the things that he called them. He called them blind guides, hypocrites, vipers, fools, whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. I'm telling you, that is not the way you win friends and influence people. And you're like, that's not the Jesus that I know. So Jesus was very, very hard on the religious establishment, yet at the same time, he publicly, he publicly defended an adulteress and he rescued her from stoning. That's Jesus. By the way, when they brought the woman to be stoned, they were just doing what the law of Moses had taught them. The law of Moses and the Torah made it very clear that if a woman was caught in the act of adultery, she was stoned. If a man was caught in the act of adultery, he was buried up to his waist in animal dung, a rope was put around his neck, and he was strangled. I'm telling you, that would be a good, good deterrent. I think if we stoned a few people and strangled a few men, we would have a lot less adultery in our society, which reminds me of a joke. And it has absolutely nothing to do, but I heard it over my summer break, so I just got to share it with you, Okay. Down in Mississippi, there was a Baptist minister and a Methodist minister, and they were great friends. And they're pastoring small churches in Mississippi, and it's a poor area. And these churches can't afford barely to pay them a salary, much less provide them a car. And so instead of giving them a car, both the churches got their pastors' bicycles. I mean, they got to visit the hospital and the shut-ins and all. And these two pastors, they would get together at the coffee shop every Sunday morning, and they'd go over their message and pray for each other and encourage one another. Well, one week, the Baptist minister is standing there, and here comes the Methodist minister walking to the coffee shop. And the Baptist minister says, son, what's going on? He says, somebody stole my bike. And the Baptist minister said, well, I'm going to tell you what to do. You go to church today, and you get all worked up, and you get all emotional, and you start sweating. And you start crying and you preach through the Ten Commandments. And when you get to that commandment, thou shalt not steal, you let them have it. You talk to them and all of a sudden that person's going to feel so guilty that stole your bike. He's going to bring that bike back to you. So the next week, here's the Baptist minister standing out of the coffee shop Sunday morning. And here comes the Methodist minister riding up on his bike. He says, son, it's good to see you got your bike back. Did you do what I told you? Did you get all worked up? Did you get all emotional? Did you get sweaty? Did you start crying? Did you preach through the Ten Commandments? And when you got to the one about thou shalt not steal, did the person feel so guilty, guilty they brought your bike back? And the Methodist minister says, not exactly. He said, but I did preach through the Ten Commandments, and I did get all worked up and emotional. And when I got to the one about thou shalt not commit adultery, I remembered where I left my bike. See? <laughs> don't groan. It's only going to go downhill from there. Don't, don't be groaning anymore. Okay? 
Jesus would not have told jokes like that, but maybe he would, maybe he would have. Think about what Jesus taught. In a society of legalistic rules and regulations, he said, don't judge. In a world that was dying with anxiety, he said, don't worry. In a day where showing off was an art form, he says, listen, when you pray, do it in private. If you give, keep it to yourself. If you fast, don't go around and look hungry. Wash your face, comb your hair, don't let anybody know you're fasting. He says, instead of hating people that hurt you and offend you and let you down, why don't you forgive your enemy? Instead of intimidating people and and, and lauding your power over them, why don't you serve those individuals? I'm telling you, Jesus was the most revolutionary, controversial person that has ever lived. And that's what we're learning in this series. This week, we're going to be looking at Jesus, the leader. And this is why it's so interesting. The prophet Isaiah referred to Jesus as being humble and meek. Jesus referred to himself as being humble and meek. The prophet Isaiah, centuries before Jesus ever came to this earth, said, man, he's going to be like a lamb led to the slaughter. And we know that that was true. But we're all going to, also going to see this weekend that even while Jesus was humble and meek, he was at the same time the greatest leader that has ever lived, and he is worthy for us to follow. That's what we're going to talk about. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to John chapter 21. We're going to look into the life of Peter. I think Peter, if we took a poll, he would be our favorite disciple because most of us can relate to Peter. I heard someone say one time, the only time Peter opened his mouth was to change feet. I mean, he was always putting his foot in his mouth, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, and maybe that's why we can relate to him. But as we look into this story in John chapter 21 in the life of Peter, I think that we're actually looking at one of the most intimate, and yet at the same time, one of the coolest scenes in all the gospels. I just want to read the story to you. John chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Afterward, and this is after Jesus has appeared to the disciples. Remember, he came through the door? And Doubting Thomas was there. By the way, Doubting Thomas got a bum rap. He wasn't Doubting Thomas. He was just Honest Thomas, right? And he says, man, unless I can touch your hands, unless I can put my fingers in your side, I can't believe it, right? It was after that scene that Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, hey, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught absolutely nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, and this is the way John always referred to himself. So whenever you read the disciple whom Jesus loved, John's talking about himself, okay? The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with There was fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish and someone counted, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now just imagine this scene. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, he took the bread and gave it to them, and and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised 
from the dead. So you have to picture this incredible intimate scene on the shores, on the sand here at the Sea of Galilee. Early in the morning, mist maybe still hanging over the ground, over the lake, fire going up, the smell of fish in the air, and Jesus with his best friends. And I always wonder if Peter's stomach knotted up when you get to verse 15. It says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. And let me tell you why that's so interesting. Simon, son of John, that was originally his name. And the idea is dove-like. That's what it meant. Shifty, moody, vacillating, not very dependable. But you'll remember in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus had that very cool encounter with him. And he says, yeah, you're Simon, son of John, but you know what? You're going to become Peter the rock. And from that point on, he called him Simon Peter. But now, after Peter has denied Jesus three times just a few days earlier, when Jesus begins this conversation, he doesn't refer to him as Peter the rock. He refers to him back to Simon, son of John. And I'm sure it was as if Jesus stuck in a little dagger and twisted a little bit. It had to hurt. So he says, Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than these? And you've probably heard this taught before. When Jesus asked that question, he used the agape form of love, which is the highest form of unconditional love. So he looks at Peter after the denial in front of all the disciples. He singles him out and he says, Peter, I have a question for you. Do you love me more than these? Do you have the highest form of unconditional love for me? And he responds, yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. But it's interesting. Three different words for love in the New Testament, agape, eros, which is an erotic love, philos, which is a brotherly love. Peter responds, I don't have the highest form of love for you. I have a brotherly love for you. Literally, it could be translated, I have a fond affection for you. So Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you have the highest form of unconditional love for me? And Peter's response is, Lord, I have a fond affection for you. But notice what Jesus said. Jesus said, feed my lambs. What's this a reference to? It's a reference to a flock. It's literally a reference to those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was giving Peter some insight into his future. He was saying, you're going to be instrumental in overseeing my flock and tending to my flock. So even after the best Peter could say is, I have a fond affection for you, Jesus says, basically, I'm still going to be using you. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, Jesus used agape, the highest form of unconditional love. He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I have a fond affection for you. That's the response. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time. By the way, how many times did Peter deny he knew Jesus? Three times. How many times did Jesus ask, do you love me? Three times. Coincidence? I don't think so. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, and Jesus changes the word. Jesus now changes the word from agape to phileo. Simon, son of John, do you have a fond affection for me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you have a fond affection for me? In other words, Jesus was saying, Peter, is that the best you can do? Is that the best you can say is that you have a fond affection for me? And Peter responded in verse 17. This is so cool. Lord, you know all things. The Greek word is gnosko. And it's an interesting word about know because this is basically what he was saying to Jesus. First of all, Jesus, you know because you're God, you're omniscient, you know everything. But you also know from the experience in our relationship over the last few days. See, for example, at home, you look at an electrical plug, you know up here there's electricity flowing out of it. If you stick, a, if you stick your finger in it, you'll live from, find out from experience that there's electricity coming out of that plug. 
That's what it's saying here. You know from the events over the last few days. You know because I sat there and denied you three times. You know what I'm like. You know my failures. You know my nature. You know my background. You know. No more grandiose statements like I'll die for you. Jesus, you know from experience and from your omniscient knowledge, you know that the best I can say is that I have a fond affection for you. And I am confident at this point, Peter fully expected Jesus to say, well, then you need to get out of here. If you're not all in, you're not in at all. But to Peter's amazement, Jesus said in verse 17, feed my sheep. Doesn't put him on probation until he can get his act together. He doesn't say, why don't you stay over here on the sidelines for a while until you can be trusted again. Jesus responds to Peter, if that's the best you can do, I mean, the best you can say is that all I have is a fond affection for you. We'll go with that. I can work with you. Let's get busy. And of course, there's a great lesson for here, all of us here this weekend. And the lesson is this, past failures do not disqualify us from doing great things for God. Aren't you glad about that? Past failures do not disqualify us from doing great things for God. You see, I'm confident that Peter, in this instant, his thinking was just like our, our thinking. In order to be used by God, I've gotta earn the right to be used by God. And I think we think that way because that's the way it works in our world, that's the way it works in our society. From the time we're born, we're taught that if we're going to succeed in life, we've gotta be able to perform at the top level. So we work really, really hard at getting the job done. And we rely on our competence, and we rely on our training, and we rely on our experience, and we put together the right procedures, and we make sure that we give 100% in accomplishing the task. But let me ask you a question. What happens when you do it by the book and you still fail? Well, there's that sense of remorse and there's guilt and there's insecurity and there's uncertainty and you begin to second guess yourself. Am I really qualified to do this? Did I somehow miss something? Am I the wrong person for this job, right? It's in the midst of those kinds of emotions that Jesus says to Peter, I love you where you are unconditionally. I accept you where you are unconditionally. Let's get to work. But I'm going to tell you something. I am confident that by this point, Peter had long since given up on the possibility of ever doing anything significant for Jesus. In his mind, he was a loser. In his mind, he was a failure. In his mind, he had a lower approval rating than Congress, if that's possible, right? I mean, he hadn't come through when the chips were down. He hadn't come through when Jesus really needed him, and he planned on returning to what he knew. He said, man, I tell you what, I'm not, obviously not very good at being a disciple, and it doesn't look like I will ever be good at being a disciple. I'm going to go back to what I know how to do. I know how to fish. I'm going fishing. By the way, do you ever feel like that as a Christian? That you just can't do this? That no matter how hard you try, you cannot pull off the Christian life that is laid out in Scripture. I mean, there are habits in your life you can't break. Relationships, no matter what you do, you can't just seem to get right. People in your past, no matter how hard you try, you just can't forgive them. You're like, I'm not sure I can really do this. Maybe I should do something else. I understand. I get up every morning and look at the classifies to see if there's something else I can do. There's no more paper routes or anything, so I don't know what to do anymore, so I just keep preaching, right? But I want you to understand something. There is hardly a man or a woman in the Bible that was used greatly by God that didn't fail greatly. In fact, if you read the Bible, you discover that you're in pretty good company when you screw up. Think about this. Abraham lied that Sarah was his wife. He ended up being the father of the Hebrew nation. Moses killed an Egyptian 40 years later, ended up being the deliverer that led the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. How about David? We all know David's story. 
committed adultery with Bathsheba, had her husband killed to cover it up. Yet the Bible says something about David. It doesn't say about any other person. It says that David was a man after God's own heart. This is the guy who committed adultery and murder. He was a man after God's own heart. Maybe you didn't know it, but David actually wrote more of the Psalms after his murder and after his adultery than he did before. God continued to use him. How about Peter? Three times he denied that he even knew Jesus, but within 60 days of the denial, he's standing on a street corner in Jerusalem, sharing the gospel, the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And it says when the people in Jerusalem heard it, 3,000 immediately converted from Judaism to Christianity. And Peter actually became a fulfillment of what we just read about in John chapter 1. I mean, it almost makes you want to screw up when you hear a list like that, right? And I'm not sure where we came up with this idea that you got to be perfect to be used by God. I promise you, I guarantee you, and you don't even need to ask Laura, I guarantee you, you would not have a pastor. I guarantee you, you wouldn't have most, most of the staff that works here. We would have very, very, very few volunteers. But this is what I want you to hear. The amazing thing about God's grace is that his love covers a multitude of sin. It covers a multitude of failures. It covers a multitude of screw-ups. I mean, when we are at our lowest, when you are at your lowest, when I am at my lowest, understand God's grace is at its best. And in fact, I believe that no one can really appreciate the grace of God more than the individual who's blown it big time. And that was the message that Peter needed to hear that day. And maybe you need to hear it this weekend. Maybe you're sitting here and you're living in the backwash of a terrible failures. This is what I want you to understand. You can still do great things for God. In fact, the history of Christianity is littered with people who have a horrible track record of failure. Peter blew it. And let's not kid ourselves. He blew it big time. And Jesus said, I can still use you. I got a job for you to do. And I think that by this time, Peter must have been thinking, okay, I get it. You can use me. Thank you for a second chance. Exactly what is it that you want me to do? I mean, do you want me to go back to school? Do you want me to move to a new area of Palestine? Do you want me to, you want me to sell all my possessions and give all my money to the poor? You just tell me what you want me to do, Jesus, because you've given me a mulligan. You've given me another chance. Right now, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. You've got me exactly where you want me. What is it that you want me to do? To do, And notice how Jesus responds to him in verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. And Jesus is getting ready to tell Peter, it's not always going to be that way. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. By the way, the Bible doesn't tell us how Peter died, but historians do. Peter and his wife, Peter was married. Peter and his wife were both in prison under Nero's rule in Rome in 61 AD. I've actually had a chance to go to Rome, see the jail cell where they were held. One morning, Peter was walked out to the place of execution with his wife, but instead of executing both of them, they made Peter watch while his wife was executed. They then took him back to his cell where he spent the night. The next morning, when they brought Peter to the place of his crucifixion, he says, I am not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord Jesus. And he requested to be crucified upside down. Think about this. He was led where he did not wish to go. His hands were stretched out against his wishes. And he died nailed upside down on a cross. Moving picture. What was Jesus telling Peter? 
This is what he was telling him. I want you to follow me, but Peter, you need to understand this. The cost of following me will be high. But if Peter's going to be used greatly, see, that's the message that Jesus needed him to learn that day. By the way, it's a good time to remind all of us that we don't talk about this in church anymore. We've actually presented a gospel, a Jesus, a Christianity that's if you follow me, you'll get eternal life and everything's going to come up roses and it's going to be fine and you're going to make more money than you've ever made. And you're going to get the best job ever and your kids are going to turn out great and your marriage is going to be off. It, 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 it's, this is a great time to say there is definitely an upside to following Jesus. Sins forgiven, peace, eternal life, definitely an upside, but I want you to understand something, and we don't say this enough, but there's also definitely a downside to following Jesus, and you need to know that. Great example of this, Luke chapter 9, verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, said to Jesus, look at this, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, this man was impressed with Jesus as a leader, and I'm sure that he had been in the crowd and he had observed all the wonderful things that Jesus had been doing, forgiving people, showing mercy, casting out demons, healing the sick, walking on the water, feeding the multitude, raising people from the dead. And so he's been watching this, and his reaction finally is, man, I am all in. I'm not just a a tire kicker, I'm a buyer. Anybody that can raise somebody from the dead, I want to be on your team, right? So he says, I'll follow you anywhere. Now notice Jesus' response in verse 58. This is how Jesus responded. Foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. And I read that and I thought, wow, obviously Jesus and I have something in common. He has ADD too. Because Jesus, here's a guy who says, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus is like, bird, bird, fox, fox. He says, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, let me teach you about animals. Like, what's, what's going on here? What was Jesus trying to say? This is what he was saying. He was saying to this man, hey, listen, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. But if you've really been observing my life, you've noticed that there's some serious sacrificing going on. I don't even have a place to call home. So when you choose to follow me, there's going to be an upside, but there's going to be a downside. So you'd better count the cost and you'd better realize what you're signing up for. If you follow me, things are going to change. And that's true. And let's be honest, right now, this doesn't sound like gentle, kind, loving, turn the cheek, just make our life great Jesus, right? It doesn't. And I'll just say something right here and... and if you want to email me about this, Steve Ellis is out here, a great friend of mine. He, he's, he's my pastor. You can email Steve Ellis. I'll get his email address, okay? But uh, let me just say, if you're sitting here this weekend and you identify yourself, I'm a Christian, but since you've made that decision, there hasn't been any change in your life, I would really question whether you've actually made the decision. Because Jesus says, you follow me, things are going to change. For example, before Jesus, your morality was pretty much based on your view of life, situation ethics. Does it feel right? Does it feel good? That's kind of how you, you, know, you made your moral decisions. You were like, I'm not going to be all that bad, but you know what? I'm not going to be all that good either. But once you become a follower of Jesus Christ, things change. All of a sudden, you don't even know where it came from. All of a sudden, you're sin sensitive. And the things that didn't bother you before, all of a sudden, they begin to bother you. And the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life, and he goes to work, and he begins to tweak your conscience. And you begin to think things like you've never thought about. Wow, I shouldn't have said that. Wow, I shouldn't have thought that. Wow, I shouldn't have done that. See, those kind of things happen once you become a follower of Jesus Christ. But not just in that area. 
When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, your entire attitude about material possessions, it's going to change. It's going to be reoriented. It's just going to happen. I mean, prior to becoming a Christian, your attitude is, it's my stuff, it's my money, and I'm going to do with it what I want to do with it. If I want to buy that house, I'll buy that house. If I want to buy that car, I'll buy that car. If I want that outfit, I'll get that outfit. If I want to go on that trip, I'm going to go on that trip. It's my money, I earned it, I'm going to do with it whatever I want. But see, once you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you realize you don't own a thing. You realize that everything you have, you have because God gave it to you. That makes you a manager of God's steward. You're just a steward of what he's given you. Your stuff isn't your stuff anymore. Actually, it never was your stuff, but now you just realize it. But not only that, it's going to impact your relationships. How many singles do we have here this weekend? Just, just slide your hand up if you're single. Let me tell you something. Once a single person steps over the line and says, Jesus, I'll follow you. Do you know what the Bible says? It says, now that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can only marry someone else who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, don't email me. I didn't say it. God said it. Email him. I'd love to know his response, right? You know what that means? That means as a Christ follower, suddenly two-thirds of the potential candidates for you to marry are wiped out. Maybe you're married and you kind of have this attitude about marriage and divorce. Listen, I'm getting married, but if it doesn't work out, cut my losses and get out. If I'm not happy, if she doesn't meet my expectations, if he doesn't expect, I'll just cut my losses, get a divorce, and I'll find another spouse. But then you become a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're like, uh-oh, uh-oh, and you're miserable in your marriage. But then you discover that the Bible only gives about three reasons why you can get divorced and get remarried from God's perspective, if you want God's blessing on your life. My point is this. <laughs> There's going to be some changes if you choose to follow Jesus. There's going to be some tough stuff along the way. There are going to be some sacrifices, right? And just like with Peter, you know, it's going to come with a price if we decide to follow Jesus. But notice verse 19. Then he, Jesus said to him, follow me. Well, let me tell you something. When you become a Christian, the question is not whether or not Jesus is going to lead you. He's going to lead you. He's the greatest leader ever. The big question we know is this. Are we going to follow? Are we going to follow? So he said to him, said to Peter, follow me. It's interesting. Uh, the Greek is keep on following. That's, that's the verb tense. It literally means this, start now and never stop. <laughs> Peter, start following me now and never stop. And there's no mention of geography. There's no mention of educational requirements. Jesus says, Peter, start following me and never stop following me. And I want you to understand, as we sit here today, this is the exact same command that Jesus has for each of us this weekend who identify ourselves as Christians. He's like, I want you to follow me and keep on following. By the way, this is how you reach the triangle and change the world. See, we start following right now where we are and we keep on following. You know what that means? It means right now where you live in your neighborhood, in your apartment complex, in your condo, wherever you live right now, you can make a difference for the kingdom of God. You don't have to move to the inner city to make a difference. You don't have to move to Uganda or India. You don't have to move to Haiti. You can make a difference if you're following where you are right now. You don't have to change jobs to reach the triangle and change the world. You don't have to change occupations. You just have to follow where you are right now. It's a matter of just impacting the people that God has placed in your sphere of influence where you are right now. Jesus said, Peter, follow me. Follow me and keep on following and interesting. Peter gets up and he starts following. He says, I trust you. You're my leader. 
I'm in. And he starts following. But then you get to verse 20. Peter turned. In other words, he momentarily took his eyes off Jesus and looked over his shoulder. And he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, okay, John, following them. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Now, let's be honest. Isn't that just like us? And I think that's why we relate so much to Peter. He's just made this bold statement. He's just stood up. He started following Jesus. And he looks over his shoulder and says, whoa, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. What about John? What's your plan for John? I know what your plan for me is, and it doesn't sound all that exciting. Somebody else is going to dress me. I'm like, get used to it, Peter. I've been dressed by Laura for 37 years. That's okay. You'll live with that. But my arms are going to be stretched out and I'm going to be led where I do not want to go. Seems like a downer, Jesus. What are you asking of John? What's his life going to look like? How's it going to turn out? What kind of sacrifice are you asking John to make? By the way, there are all kinds of reasons why I think we don't follow Jesus. Sometimes it's just flat out pride. We want to do what we want to do. Sometimes it's fear. If I follow him, where is he taking me? There's uncertainty. But all of a sudden, Peter is facing another one, and I call this the comparison barrier to following Jesus. In other words, instead of just focusing on what Jesus calls us to do, we get curious. We get a little nosy. We begin to compare what's going on in our lives, what we're doing, as to what other people are doing. Peter got curious, and he began to compare, and he says, what about him? What's John's future look like? What's his destiny if he follows you? And you notice Jesus' response in verse 22. Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, by the way, John would be about 2,100 years old now. But if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? In other words, Peter, mind your own business. You must follow me. And I love how Jesus punctuates this. In the Greek, it says, you, me, follow. Let's go. You, me, I'm the leader. You follow me. You don't worry about John. You just focus on your relationship with me. Now, I just want to say, nosiness and curiosity that leads to comparison, it will keep you from following. And I think there are times in all of our lives where we go through this. For example, God will reveal something to me about what he wants me to do. It's clear as a bell. And he says, I want you to follow me. And so I begin to follow him. And I begin this process of fulfilling the mission he's giving me. But see, on this journey, all of a sudden, it starts to get tough and it starts to get hard. And it gets tough and it gets hard because when we're following Jesus, his leadership, Part of the journey is always about character development. It's going to get tough. It's going to get harder. And the tougher it gets to follow and the more sacrifice we have to make to follow. And we look around, it's much easier to become judgmental about what other people are doing or maybe what they're not doing. We all do this. You ever been serving on a weekend, changing babies' diapers, three-year-old small group leader, trying to help people park in the parking lot and they're cursing at you and flipping you off and you're like, like, wait a second doing this these people just show up to church one hour drop their kids off for an hour of free babysitting come pick them up and go home and i'm stuck here another service because i just took care of their kids and now i'm why don't they serve you know what they're not going to serve why am i doing this you ever do that you ever is it just me maybe it's just me or you have an unleashed campaign and you pray about it and you, you say, God, you know, God lays something on your heart so you commit to giving it, but you know it's going to require some sacrifices and some adjustments in your spending. And then you talk to all your other friends who are living the life of Raleigh. They haven't sacrificed at all from what you can tell. They're not giving it all. And you're like, well, wait a second, Jesus. What about them? Why didn't you ask them to do what you've asked us to do? And suddenly your ability to be obedient and follow Jesus is negatively impacted Because you become more focused on that person and what they're doing or maybe what they're not doing than on the one who said, follow me. 
And Jesus gave us the solution to this temptation in verse 22. He said this, what business is it of yours, what I'm doing in the life of someone else? He's kind of like, hey, Mike, guess what? I call the shots, you don't. If they don't ever serve, that's not your problem. If they don't ever give a penny, what's that got to do with you? You mind your own business and you follow me, you obey me. Now, let me just tell you something. If you're comparing yourself to other people and it's affecting your ability to follow Jesus and do what he's called you to do, you got an issue and you need to deal with it. Your vision is blurred. It's hurting your walk. So how do you overcome the comparison barrier? Let me just give you a couple things, and then I'm going to wrap it up. Here's, first of all, admit you have the problem. Admit you have the problem. I've never solved a problem in my life until I admitted I had it. So admit you have a problem, and if it helps to write it down, write it down somewhere. Put it on a post-it note. Stick it on your mirror, on your refrigerator. Write it down. I tend to be too nosy. I just need to mind my own business and follow Jesus. Here's the second one. When the problem surfaces, confess it openly. You got to treat it like a plague. I'm telling you, if you dwell there long enough, it's a disease. It will make you bitter and it will make you angry. And here's the third. Remind yourself that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's a relationship that's not shared by anyone else. So it doesn't matter what he's calling them to do. The question is, what is he calling you personally and uniquely to do? Now, I want to close, and I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to step on your toes a little bit, but I want you, I, just because I love you. I think a lot of you are Christians. I really do. I, I think you've accepted God's free gift of salvation. You've admitted you're a sinner. You've accepted what Jesus Christ did for you on your cross. Your sins have been forgiven. Your eternity in heaven is secure. I think you're a Christian. But what I'm realizing as I get older and older in life there's a difference between being a Christian and following Jesus. And I think a lot of you are Christians, but I'm not sure there's a lot of you following Jesus. Oh, you've been inspired. You've come to church. You've read something. You've heard something. You've got right up to the point where you got really, man, I'm going to get serious about this thing with Jesus, right? You've come right up to the edge where you think, I'm going to trust Jesus. How many times have you said that? I am going to trust Jesus with every area and every aspect of my life. I shouldn't be in this job. It goes against biblical principles. I'm going to resign. I'm going to trust God to help me get into the right job. I, I, I've never been a person of generosity. It, the Bible says do it. Just, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to become, I'm going to start the tithe. I'm just going to do it, and I'm going to see if God is going to take care. And you've gotten right up to that point, right? But then you know what happens? You get out of church, and you begin to paint the worst-case scenario. All the what-ifs. Hmm. Yeah, but if I make this decision... How's it gonna impact my future? How's it gonna impact my family? What's it gonna mean in my financial world? And here's the answer to that question. Nobody knows. But you're never gonna find out until you start following. But if you start following, God might just open doors, free your spirit, use your life, bless you in ways you never thought possible. He may open up to you the John 10, 10 abundant life that you so desperately desire, but you will never experience until you begin to follow. You'll never find out until you recognize him as the ultimate leader who can be trusted and you decide to follow him. I love this verse, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, 9. It says this, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's just looking. Oh, there's one. Her heart's fully committed. His heart's fully committed. How can I bless them? How can I strengthen them?
Maybe it's time for you to get out of the safety zone and follow a prompting to do something for God. Maybe it's time to do what he's been asking you to do and nudging you to do, but you've just never had the guts to do. Because who knows? God may be unbelievably gracious to you when he sees your obedience, but you'll never know until like Peter, you just start following. Chuck Swindoll, I love him. I've read many of his books and I actually used to attend his church in California for a while. This is what he says. We are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. But I want you to understand something. When you begin to follow Jesus, he makes the impossible possible. But you've got to follow. And this is what he says to you today. You, me, follow. But where are you taking me? Just follow. But I don't know. Just trust me. Because I'm the ultimate leader. You can trust me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this life that you've made possible to us. And I feel like so many never get to experience. They just are so close. They're so close. They're so close to really trusting you with their life, getting out of the boat so that they can walk on water. (laughs) They're so close to you using them to do incredible things for you. But there's such a reluctance on so many of our parts to follow you. Calm our fears. Build our courage. And like Peter, help us to get up and start following where we are and never stop. And we're going to give you the glory for what you're going to do in our lives. In your name we pray.